from Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C. This is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights for our special series on health disparities and minority health in partnership with the Rare Disease Diversity Coalition, a new first-of-its-kind group addressing the extraordinary challenges faced by patients of color with rare disease. I'm your host, Stacey Kerr from HPS, and I have the pleasure of being joined with special guest host, Tammy Boyd, the Chief Policy Officer of Black Women's Health Imperative. Welcome, Tammy. Thanks for joining another conversation in our series together. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and glad to be here today. Yeah, I know we're excited, both excited to talk to Dr. Sana Syed, a neurologist and the health policy and advocacy director of the American Muslim Health Professionals. Dr. Syed serves on the steering committee of the RDDC, and in addition to her work as a neurologist and an advocate, she serves as the advocacy moderator for the Women's Neurologist Group and chair of the policy committee for the National Muslim Task Force on COVID-19, a busy woman. She also has experience conducting clinical trials, which I know we want to talk about today. So Dr. Syed, it's an honor to have you here. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here, Stacey, and thank you for having me. Thank you. And I, I know we've been working together on the RDDC and uh, have always appreciated your contributions there and looking forward to, to this conversation. Let's, um, let's start. Just can you tell us more about the organization you're a part of, the American Muslim Health Professionals, um, and maybe as part of that, the unique concerns that the Muslim community and providers face when it comes to healthcare access and quality? Thank you. Thank you, Stacey. Thanks for that question. Um, so the American Muslim Health Professionals essentially is an organization that is committed to advancing the health care for all Americans. The unique element here is that we do provide a platform for Muslim health professionals who may not be very well connected with other organizations potentially to uniquely uh, contribute to advancing health care for everyone. So our impact is defined to all community members. And now you asked about, of course, we do focus a lot on minority populations and we try to address particular needs of the Muslim community, if any. Mm-hmm. So, so you asked the, the valid question, what are those needs, right? So t- generally, the needs have been similar to everybody else because there is no Muslim healthcare, right? Healthcare and people are the same. Um, so it was the same caveats and some Muslim folks did not have as ready access to health care insurance problems, uh, navigating the health care system. I would say some of the unique elements of our patient, uh, our population demographic is a lot of us are immigrants, uh, first generation, second generation. And even those folks who've been here many years sometimes have language barriers, uh, mistrust issues, are not used to having healthcare access in the way that it is implemented in the US. So encouraging them and having a forum that they are connected with, maybe trust a little bit more, although we need to work on the trust issue and you know, generalize trust everywhere and there's no conspiracy going on, right? So right. Um, this allows them, like I'll give you an example. American Muslim Health Professionals before I joined uh, was a champion for the Affordable Care Act. We were one of the leading faith-based organizations that uh, helped enroll Muslims around the country in the in ACA. And our target was not just the Muslim population, but we did was went to different mosques and set up shop and uh, like, well, or helped others set up shop, not necessarily did it ourselves, but provided materials and support. So that really helped uh, uptake of the, the ACA when it came about. And it was a need. 
people need healthcare access. So there is no unique need per se, but it is the fact that sometimes there are barriers uh, such as like uh, reluctance and whatnot, or not, lack of familiarity or linguistic barriers. One instance where suddenly there was a, a population specific need has been the pandemic though. Yes. So I never thought I would say this, but apparently the, the uh, this public health crisis has impacted people differently and similarly, but then differently because suddenly there are certain um, religious holidays and certain uh, certain uh, congregations that we have that are impacted by this. We have yeah. Friday prayers. You have uh, Ramadan that is going on right now and which is uh, supposed to be uh, uh, an occasion when people come together, they fast and they, then they come together to eat and whatnot and you visit each other. Then you have prayers at the end of Ramadan. You have prayers every day that people go to. The, like people who normally don't go to the mosque during Ramadan because it's such a big deal and they want to be there. And we had to issue guidelines. You mentioned the National Muslim Task Force uh, and we've been working. So there is an app has been a leader in that. They founded the, they were one of the co-founders of this uh, National Muslim Task Force. So implementing public health guidelines that only the Muslim population really needs to follow, very similar to the national guidelines, of course, but yes. taking into account the religious nuances. Yes. Yeah, that's that's great. And, and interesting as you mentioned, you know, the pandemic, it's it's really hit, you know, many community, minority communities and, and the Muslim yeah. community in different ways. Um, so you serve as the um, health policy and advocacy director um, for the American Muslim Health Professionals. Can you tell us a little more um, about your role in the organization and how um, how the organization has engaged in healthcare advocacy to support policies um, that really improve equity, accessibility of healthcare? Um, for Americans. And I know you also hosted um, a, a conversation with Dr. Fauci as you talk about the COVID pandemic. But can you tell us a little bit more about your role and your leadership um, in the group? Yes, of course. Um, so thanks, Tammy. And uh, so th there's so much that was done over the past year since the pandemic started. And of course, we've been engaged in work prior to the pandemic as well. So specifically dividing up this question, um, healthcare access in general, we've been committed to that before the pandemic, during the pandemic, hopefully after <laughs> it as well. So uh, ACA was one of the, the main things that we started off with. We've been committed to protecting ACA with other collaborating organizations. We've always uh, co collaborated with organizations that advocate for Medicare, Medicaid expansion, because that has been um, healthcare access also has an equity element, and that has been one way to ensure greater equity, at least my conversations with other public health organizations. Um, I will mention as a side note here that we work very collaboratively with other public health organizations, regardless of religious denominations. I mean, that's like at our very core. Uh, that we want to collaborate with everyone and health equity specifically. So like you said, uh, Tammy, during the pandemic, suddenly it was really staring us in the face. Um, previously, it's always been there in the background. There was always a problem, but I, I think the pandemic really surfaced it. We needed to do our part in this. So one of the things that I came up with during this, is the, and it's very, very new, just in the last six months, is it started like a health equity network alliance and a very loose 
alliance and we in particular got in touch with certain health equity experts in the field. I'm based out of Boston. So there are some uh, health equity physicians in, uh, at Harvard that uh, write about this frequently. I, I connected with them. The Campaign Against Racism uh, organization run by Michelle Morse. I reached out to her. She was instrumental in connecting me with more people uh, and uh, specifically Sophia Castellans. She's at you know, uh, Vanderbilt University. Now, connecting with all of them really helped me understand things. Now, I focused, we've worked on healthcare access. I wanted to work on healthcare delivery. I'm not an ex expert on uh, bias, uh, unconscious bias, and I recognize that that's a problem, but I wanted to also look at other things because there's embedded bias in the, the delivery of healthcare. So what we decided to do was to work on um, do, publish scientific materials critiquing the way that healthcare delivery occurs. We're not the only ones doing it, but I don't mean, uh, I still think that it's valuable for people to engage. Just because somebody else is also doing it doesn't mean another voice doesn't matter. So we worked off of the publications that, for instance, Michelle has been involved in and has been spearheading. And I worked with Sophia and she was one of the co-authors with us and was, I would say, a very invaluable resource in framing our health equity narrative. One of my friends has a PhD in systems approach. That is one of our publications that just was published in February. I mean, like I said, it's only been a few months, so we only managed one publication since we're trying to do this in our free time. Well, that's so, no um, small feat. One published <laughs> research is no small feat. So Yes. <laughs> so, so it's in the American Journal of Bioethics, and we hope to keep doing that. Critiquing, critiquing different elements, working with these health equity experts. We're also in touch with the medical student group, uh, the Institute of Justice and Healing and Medicine, and, and supporting their uh, advocacy efforts because they are specifically, uh, well, them and Campaign Against Racism and also the AMA have been working um, with a lot of different organizations to critique particular health care delivery issues. So there's uh, these algorithms specifically that are used in healthcare that have been uh, heavily criticized for being biased, racially biased. Um, and, and we talk to the American Medical Association as well. They're, they don't generally uh, collaborate, which is fine. They're such a large organization, but we understood from them what are the needs in the field. Publications and public health information is what it's required. So we're also trying to do webinars to help familiarize not just other health professionals, but also community members, that cancer screenings and whatnot. How is it needed and how is it different? And uh, what are the data around it and how, when you should be screened? And we're uh, so we are, that that's been our health equity effort, and then I would mention joining the the, the rare disease diversity coalition because I I truly believe in clinical trial equity, and I thought this was a very unique forum that brings so many people together. Like I said, collaboration is at our core, and it, this is a true manifestation of collaboration. And I think it really they're so, so solution oriented. It was so delightful to join them. Last thing, pandemic, <laughs> I'll, I'll wrap up very soon. <laughs> yeah. Pandemic uh, brought its own set of challenges. For the Muslim population, I already mentioned we had to like issue guidances, particularly on certain public health issues, but pandemic specific policies as well. Again, I recognize we were one voice and there were other voices as well. So it's not to discount that other people were working on this, but we approached it head on 
We looked at all the public health solutions out there, increasing PPE, protecting health workers, increasing testing with the focus on minority populations. We identified those legislations and we met with senators. We uh, engaged community members to write to their representatives. Uh, we, um, we also uh, rallied with other organizations and wrote our own letters and you know, engaged with other organizations, send it to federal leaders and other Senate Congress people, depending on the piece of legislation that we were supporting. But yes, we were very proactive in that as well. It's difficult to measure the impact because so many organizations are trying to do it, but we did not like, you know, stand at the sidelines. We were very, very happily engaged. Yeah, wow. Well, we're, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're, we talked about COVID. We're going to talk about clinical trials, more about the RDDC. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to HPS Insights. Hamilton Place Strategies, HPS, is an analytical public affairs consulting firm with offices in Washington, D.C., New York, and California. HPS uses substantive analysis to understand complex topics and create public affairs tools to explain issues to target audiences and reach critical stakeholders. We achieve our clients' goals by enhancing understanding of issues, products, and companies, and ultimately improving outcomes. Learn more at hamiltonplacestrategies.com or follow us on Twitter at HPS Insight. Welcome back to HPS Insights. We're in conversation today with Dr. Sana Syed, the Health Policy and Advocacy Director of the American Muslim Health Professionals and a leader on the new Rare Disease Diversity Coalition. And I'm joined by Tammy Boyd from Black Women's Health Imperative. You started to talk about clinical trials, and I know that you have experience personally in clinical trials. So we know that diverse representation in clinical trials or genome studies continues to be a real challenge. Can you speak to how Muslim patients are being engaged and represented or not in clinical trials? Thank you. Thank you, Stacey, for that question. Now, this is a complicated topic um, in the sense that, first of all, clinical trial engagement is not tracked based on faith. So it's difficult to get numbers. But at the same time, um, and our Muslim population is extremely diverse group, demographically speaking. Uh, it's about 20 to 30% Black Muslims who are obviously US-based and are not immigrants, so that differentiates it for others. And there's a huge proportion of Arab and South Asian uh, folks that are more you know, recent immigrants. And it is very difficult to, to look at how they are being engaged because for one thing, the Arab population has historically been classified as Caucasian as well. So it's difficult mm -hmm. to say there. And then uh, South Asians uh, like myself have been classified as Asian. So it, it is difficult, but I will tell you from sort of our personal experience and kind of a no specific survey or research, but understanding our own population and being in this realm, what we've seen is that a lot, there's of course clinical trial barriers for the black populations to some extent is the same as any, uh, as we see in the black community in general. They're, they have a, a history of uh, atrocities in clinical trial and that creates a barrier, which is yes. understandable. I would say it is compounded in the overall Muslim population by a sense of mistrust. And it's very interesting that you put genome studies there because that in particular triggers this reaction that they're, you're being tracked somehow, like your DNA, DNA the government is yes. going to use it in some way against you. Because there was also a, an uptick in um, uh, monitoring and surveillance of the Muslim population after 9-11 uh, to an extreme sense. 
which has created this uh, mistrust uh, of yes. the government. And this comes to like the NIH studies as well. So uh, to overcome that is very difficult. Uh, it is important to engage with like community organizations. But I think another element is to engage with them with language that helps explain it to their community, how this is gonna benefit everybody and is not some kind of a conspiracy. Yes. So I would say broadly speaking, that it, that is what my assessment is of the, the challenges we face. Yeah, and you mentioned so many things in the vaccine space with COVID-19, yes. you know, so many um, similar things. Um, so let's let's talk about vaccines. I, I saw your recent article in Harvard Medical School Center's um, primary care blog on community engagement to tackle COVID-19 vaccine misinformation. Do you, how do you think misinformation plays a role in vaccine hesitancy in minority communities or maybe specific to the to the populations you're working with? So yes, of course, they've seen uh, how um, misinformation has impacted certain minorities. Again, the, we collect data by race like uh, as a country, and we've seen how it has impacted certain minorities, especially the Black community. And that was something that we noticed within our community as well. But we also noticed overall, like just, and this was more not a survey again, but understanding from our community leaders what they were hearing from their congregants or the, the folks in their circles was the, the same misinformation was trickling down, but there was this added uh, issue that was raised about the ingredients of the vaccines. This surfaced in the beginning uh, because there is this concept of halal, which is similar to kosher. And they were asking whether it has animal products. Wow. Uh, yeah, particularly porcine, because that is just, you know, off the table, similar to the Jewish faith. And then even bovine, you, it has to be a certain way. And what we um, what we ended up doing is after understanding all of these questions that came through, we did a, a thorough review of the ingredients and Pfizer and Moderna was, were the two vaccines that initially came through. We looked at, um, because vaccines is not a new thing, right? Vaccines have been there for a while. It's just with COVID and the magnitude of the problem and right. the conspiracy surrounding it, it has blown out, like really out of proportion. So there was more misinformation than historically with any vaccine, I would say. So, so what we did, we even looked at, um, in the past, there's been like uh, rulings around this really religious rulings, which said that because these products are incorporated in the vaccine after going through a lot of processing, so even if they are included, they have changed from their original format and therefore yeah. it is allowed. And including, uh, and in particular, there is um, within the Quran, it says that saving a life has paramount importance. So the pandemic, if you get vaccinated, you're essentially not just protecting yourself, but others. So mm -hmm. that is, of, it is one of our core principles. Yes. So, so, so recognizing that and using that um, sort of uh, also historic like ruling, religious ruling about how the, the, the ingredients once processed are uh, allowed. And then looking at the Pfizer and Moderna ingredients, which do not contain any animal They products, do not. Okay. I was going to say, did you, yes. knowing this, they this do history, not. did you, I was wondering, did you yes. anticipate that that would be of concern? We, we looked into it. It was an evolving thing, right? We didn't know the, the ingredients. We found out what they were. It's going on. Like it was happened so fast, right? But um, we, we, we also reviewed the ingredients. We, we made it clear there are no products of this nature in the two vaccines 
And that was one of the first barriers we had to come overcome that was unique to our population. And I would say that the other sort of barriers were more streamlined and similar to everybody else. Um, and, and it was the same thing. That, 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 that not, is there enough safety data? Is there enough this, enough that? And that is one of the reasons we did a webinar with Dr. Fauci as well to address the, the, the usual suspects of, uh, uh, of vaccine hesitancy and highlight the, the how robust the clinical trial process is around these vaccines and the way it's done and flag the, um, uh, the, the diversity in these, uh, because there were still at least 10% the diverse population. I mean, it's not a huge number, but what we have, we should flag. Yeah. And um, to sort of follow up on that, I know you attended the um, RDDC's recent steering committee meeting. Uh, which featured remarks from um, Dr. Uh, Wayne Frederick, the president of Howard University. But he spoke to how a diverse uh, medical professional community can better serve a diverse population. Uh, What barriers do you see in recruiting Muslims to join the health profession? Yeah, so thanks, Tammy. So that is an interesting conversation. And and as I've said a few times already, that our population is so diverse that the the challenges of uh, joining the health professional profession are probably different for each demographic. Um, and and I've, I know that numbers around uh, African-Americans in the medical community are fairly low, which is really shocking uh, in the three to 5% range. And, and we know through research that black patients do better under uh, physicians of the, the same of, demographic. Yes. Yes, their care does, they do better. And so it, I, it, there, the, the, the barriers are the generalized barriers that you see in the community. For the South Asian and the, the Arab population and other, any other demographic, I would say, historically, uh, our families are, uh, uh, are obsessed with the medical profession. So <laughs> it's uh, when you're born, you're, you're assigned a profession and usually it's either a doctor or an engineer. I mean, it happened to me personally. You were, you were <laughs> destined for this work. <laughs> it sounds like you're meeting your destiny. I'll tell you that. Yes. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, it worked out for me and I'm happy for it. But sometimes I wonder, um, I also did not grow up in the U.S. I, uh, I grew up in Kuwait and like I came here for my training. So my story is also a little bit different. And I think that is also a demographic you see here. That's what I meant. Some of us are recent immigrants. They're coming in. And so it changes. I I think if uh, someone is living here, recently moved, has to go to college, sometimes there may be the challenge of navigating the education system. Sure. Uh, I can I can foresee that I, I but I don't want to say that that this is definitely an issue because it's not really based on research in, by any means. It's just like a understanding and the, 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 the system that we have here is difficult sometimes. And mm-hmm. that may be a challenge. But I would say our parents don't let out when it comes to, to joining the medical profession there. Mm-hmm. Maybe they should be a little less pushy because maybe there is <laughs> a revolt the, going on solution. <laughs> <laughs> then maybe the, the people over here especially kids who grow up here they they want to do what they want to do so let them get to their own conclusions about their life um but yeah well before we turn i want to and i want to get into sort of the a little bit more on the rddc i just given your experience as a medical professional healthcare advocate clinical researcher how optimistic are you that what we've been discussing and the pandemic's illumination of health disparities 
will actually spur meaningful and lasting changes in the near term? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I was saying this past year that as horrible as the pandemic was, and as much as I wish it didn't happen, the only good thing that I've seen is the increase in the collaborations that I've seen and people working together on shared solutions. It's not just, oh, is that community's problem? It's everyone's problem because we're all interconnected. So I, I did notice that shift. One of the major things, and I alluded to it in ta tangent re uh, earlier, that the Amer American Medical Association looked into health equity very, very seriously, looked at these race-based algorithms, issued a guidance that this needs to be revamped. They're working with all these organizations like Mich Dr. Michelle Morse's organization, the, the, the Institute of Justice and Healing, the medical students who are you know, spearheading this. Yeah. And they've already revamping medical education to take out these algorithms. So it was a step in the right direction. And then, you know, these activists like Dr. Morse and the medical students in involved in this uh, are continuing to advocate further. And we're trying to be a, in a supportive role with them, with these publications and their efforts to change the way that clinical care is also implemented, because you don't want a disconnect between the education and the implementation, right? Mm -hmm. So I do see some positive shift I, we saw a lot of legislation come through, uh, putting health equity as a priority that we've supported with the Health Equity Collaborative. Um, and, and so I, I think people are noticing. I'm, I'm, I would say I am cautiously optimistic that it would translate into rea reality. I am relieved that people are taking note finally and looking at this seriously. Uh, and I am very happy to see so many people collaborating and unifying on this. Uh, and I do hope that a lot of these policies stay. They're not just, you know, uh, and I don't mean the health equity efforts, but other health policy measures that were done to improve minority health, that they stick. There's not just a one-off during the pandemic and then they're like, okay, we're done, adios. I mean, I hope that's not the approach that we are able to have sustainable impact from them. Sure. Well, we're going to take one more break and then we're going to come back and finish our conversation with Dr. Syed. You're listening to HPS Insights. Every Friday, Hamilton Place Strategies founding partner, Tony Fratto, joins John Fagan and Brendan Walsh of Markets Policy Partners for the HPS Macrocast, an in-depth look at the macroeconomic news driving the week. Check out the latest episode at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash podcast. Welcome back. We're in conversation with Dr. Sana Sayed, Health Policy and Advocacy Director of the American Muslim Health Professionals and a leader on the new Rare Disease Diversity Coalition. Dr. Sayed, we've talked to uh, Linda Goler Blount from Black Women's Health Imperative on this podcast, and she's shared more about the new rare disease diversity coalition that Black Women's Health is um, is leading with a number of you. And I know you serve on the steering committee. And I want to talk, uh, get your perspective on what are some of the delays and barriers to diagnosis and treatment that Muslim patients with rare disease encounter. You've you shared with us today uh, the diversity of that group uh, in the Muslim community and how we can't think of it as just all sort of the same. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that manifests itself in all of these questions, obviously. And I, uh, to answer your question similarly, that because of the diversity, each demographic may face unique challenges 
Um, and, and I think the, the ones that have been the best assessed have been in the black community in general. So of course those, those barriers exist. Um, but I think one thing that is maybe unique to the, the other potential demographics, majority demographics, I guess, that's not to preclude any uh, other folks, is that, like I mentioned before, that there are more recent immigrants, for instance, and that's not to say everybody is, but it's possible that navigating the healthcare system may be a challenge for them. And it, then it goes into like, do they have the appropriate healthcare access? And once they have the healthcare access, do they have the any language barriers that makes them uh, at, uh, like less able to navigate the system uh, appropriately to get a diagnosis? Because having any disease is a challenge, but at least when you have something like diabetes and hypertension, it's easier to get diagnosed, get treatment. It's kind of standardized. It may be better in some people, a little better or worse, but it's a little bit more straightforward. With a rare disease, it's usually you go through a gamut of doctors. You have to find the right specialist. You need to be able to advocate for yourself. So all of these things will pose barriers. It will pose barriers for anyone. And I, I think that for more recent immigrant families in particular, if they're not used to the, the healthcare system here, and in some cases they may not be used to advocating for themselves very strongly, mm -hmm. um, it may be very hard for them to reach that answer. They may be written off or they may not reach the, 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 the provider they might need to see to make that diagnosis. And they may not even have healthcare access. I don't think and there are any religious barriers per se. I cannot think of any reason from that perspective. Um, of course, uh, yeah, I don't really think that there's any issues there. It's just a matter of these other ancillary factors that may play a role just because the, the, the Muslim demographic is, is very diverse and some of them are immigrants and that, that may be a barrier. So in addition, um, I wanted to kind of follow up on that, you know, in addition to um, you serving as a steering committee member of the RDDC, the Rare Disease Diversity Coalition, um, you're also a member of the Research and Clinical Trials Work Group. And, um, you know, given your, your background's position with research experience, um, healthcare um, policy expert and an advocate, um, I know you will bring an incredibly holistic um, perspective an approach to leading this work. Um, so can you speak to, you know, why you agreed to join the working group um, and what you hope to achieve? And then just some, what are your, you know, some of the uh, key goals and focus of 2021? And then we also may <laughs> ask you to join our provider work group as well, because just listening to you, you know, you have just an extraordinary um, perspective and experience I think will be very helpful to that group as well. No, thank you. Thank you, Timmy. Thanks for letting me know that as well, for sure. Yeah, yeah you got one, I, more, <laughs> one more thing to do. <laughs> I'll add that to my list for sure. No, I was just very excited to join the RDDC when I saw what the group was doing. I attended one of the, the initial inaugural events for this year. I know you guys have been doing this longer than I have known um, uh, or my involvement, but I just saw the unique organization the perspective that you bring the the people that you bring to the table and like i said for me the creation of clinical care is also an equity issue 
so we need equitable representation there. We've already talked about healthcare access and we've talked somewhat about the healthcare delivery in the hospitals. So those are also like parts of the healthcare that need to be equitable. But this, the creation of healthcare is so important. And like you said, Tammy, I have research experience, particularly with clinical trials. Um, it's, it's part of my routine job. So I, I, I know what goes into creating a, a clinical research project and the questions that we try to answer. And I, I think some, there's two things that I had in my mind when I looked at your working groups and looked at how you were working on solutions together. One was, of course, I wanted to be part of this group to contribute with my experience and uh, try to make things more equitable in clinical trials by either making the, the, the presentation of clinical trials to the, the community members more palatable and overcoming the, like, their unique community uh, barriers that we see across different demographics and religious groups, like overcoming that with proper messaging. But at the same time, I will say that I also wondered as someone who's so embedded in the research process that I may have something to learn as well in the, like when we're creating a research project, I never think about, oh, we need to exclude that demographic or not. But what if inadvertently we as researchers may be doing that? So I did, I, I do have to say that one of the things that did interest me and I wondered about this is that whether listening to all the others in the group with their perspectives, will it help me discover as well something that I need to change in the way that we do our, our research as well. So I, I let's see, I, I, I want to like explore this further. I want to be a part of, I, I really enjoy discussions and especially around science, of course. So <laughs> I, I do hope uh, this cross-functional experience will be enlightening across uh, the board. And I, in terms of what I hope to achieve, uh, I hope that we're able to communicate more effectively about clinical trials to all community members, because for me, that is a huge gap. I hope we're able to work with uh, like patient groups and industry groups and other groups together to, to, to find alignment, because I don't like the idea that, oh, this is someone else's responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility. It's the responsibility of the physician running the trial, talking to the patients, the responsibility of the the company that put the protocol together is the responsibility of the patient groups who are involved in all of this to, to improve community engagement. So that, that's why, and I think that's how they look at it. Um, but maybe the, the missing link has been like all of them coming to the table together to, to create effective communications, to work together. So streamlining that work process would be, would be amazing if it goes beyond the, the, the RDDC even uh, and becomes more generalizable in other trials. Well, I, 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 I do think you are um, uniquely committed to this idea of our interconnectedness. And, you know, as you've sort of woven through this, how dependent we are on these collaborations and coalitions coming together. Um, and, I, and I wonder as somebody, you know, who has, I wish more people thought like you, I think we're, we're all, you know, working to make that happen. But I, I wonder as somebody who has spent a career in health equity in this moment, it, it, and with your perspective at the federal level, what do you think is the most important or impactful legislative or regulatory action that could occur this year to improve the quality of, and access to care 
not just for for Muslim, for rare, for everyone. For everyone, yeah, no, that's a great question. And hard to answer just because of that. Um, but from the federal level, I, I noted that they, uh, they did issue uh, sort of a letter to different medical organizations uh, because there was a New England Journal article on the race-based algorithms, but it was more like, oh, we're watching you and we're seeing that there's this inequity in healthcare. Now, it's nice that they flagged that, but maybe that is, uh, and maybe it will help organizations, medical organizations, and it has come together and work on revamping clinical care. But I think from a policy perspective, that is more like something passive they could do. But I think like the, the government really could work on healthcare access. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, like if they have appropriate access, that that is does translate into better clinical care. If somebody doesn't even make it to the hospital, they're not, uh, preventive medicine is suffering. And this is what happened in the pandemic. Why did like certain communities suffer more? And why why did it affect the black community more? Because they had these pre-existing conditions more. It's not because they were black or anything. That's ridiculous. It's not a disease, but they had all these pre-existing conditions. Why did they have that? If you have to ask the question, why, 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 to get to the answer, right? It's because they were not like regularly getting medical care, most likely because they didn't have appropriate healthcare access. The prevention was a problem. There's also like social issues, of course. I don't want to discount that. Food insecurity is a problem. Housing insecurity is a problem. Where you live is a problem. Is there an appropriate healthcare yeah, center? The social social determinants, right? So I think that the priority. I don't know what kind of um, legislation they have for social determinants of healthcare, but what I think that they need to do is improve healthcare access and then start looking at social determinants of health because they make regulations on food insecurity, housing, education is also, I think, has an impact on health. They make these rules based on money. They don't make these rules based on the impact on healthcare. Or the outcomes, right. Yes. And that would inadvertently affect uh, the financial element too, which they don't understand because these, if you don't look at social determinants of healthcare from a healthcare perspective, you just look at it at the instant, like, oh, put this money in and this much out. Like, that's not what it is. It's the care, right? Look at the health, not just the healthcare, right? Yeah. So so they need to start factoring in healthcare costs as a part of their determination. I mean, unfortunately, it sounds ruthless, but cost is what drives this. But they need to start incorporating healthcare costs. And then I do think that they will change the way they implement uh, regulations around social determinants of health, like food insecurity, housing insecurity, education even. So, so I think that would really make a change. That's I, I, I'm going to end this conversation with the word that I think about you most and you're, you're closing it with the, the interconnectedness of it all and how interconnected yes. it, it all is. And I, you know, I know and the RDDC and um, when it comes to health equity, we all benefit from the urgency you bring to this work and the energy and with all you have going on, what a pleasure it is for you to stop and take time out to talk to us today. It's been a great conversation. We've really appreciated it. Tammy, thank you for being here. Dr. Sayed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Stacey. It was a delightful conversation. I really enjoyed talking to both of you. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights Podcast, produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com. Thank you.